0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: On ABC RN, hi, I'm Kylie Morris. Thanks for joining me for Between the Lines. Now, there's no shortage of pundits on the airwaves and online ready to share how they believe the public think and feel about world events in Australia. But what about? those ordinary Australians themselves? How do they actually see our place in the world and relations with other nations? Well, to find out, thankfully, the Lowy Institute each year conducts an authoritative survey and seeks answers to these and many other matters to tell us what's on the minds of the Australian people in 2022. I'm joined by Natasha Kassem, who's the Director of Public Opinion and the Foreign Policy Program at the Lowy Institute. Natasha, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Kylie. It's a major undertaking, obviously, for Lowy and with lots of logistics involved. Tell me when the poll was taken and how many people were actually surveyed.
2: So every year, the Lowy Institute poll goes into the field in March and we survey around 2,000 Australians. It's nationally representative. We do it online and on the phone. And every year we release it in June, as we have today.
1: There's so many conclusions but let's dive on in uh, and and get a sense of how people are feeling it seems we are a pretty optimistic bunch still when it comes to economic confidence looking forward to the next 5 years tell me about those results first <laughs>
2: Well, you're right that the majority of Australians remain optimistic, 62% say that they're very optimistic or optimistic about Australia's economic performance in the world over the next five years. But that is 17 points down from 2021. And it is amongst one of the lower results when you look back over the last two decades of our polling. I think Australians are worried about the impact of first on the economy, but also now of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Having said that, even though Australians are not quite as optimistic as they have been in the past about the economy, they remain overwhelmingly positive about globalisation and about free trade.
1: I mean, you mentioned the war in Ukraine there, and certainly it seems as though you can see the outlines of that conflict in many of the areas polled, certainly in terms of safety and security and how people are feeling this year.
2: Absolutely. Remembering that we went into the field just a week after the invasion of Ukraine was clearly at the forefront of Australians' minds. And as you say, only half the country reports feeling safe, which again is pretty remarkable when you the history of the poll, that's generally been the sentiment of 80 or 90% of Australians. But now it's only just over 50. And then All Australians, it's almost unanimous, say that they're concerned about Russia's invasion. And in fact, Russia's foreign policies have shot to the top of Australia's critical threats. So in terms of threat perception, you know, in the past, it would have been COVID, might have been climate. A few years back, it might have been terrorism. But today, it's the foreign policies of Russia and China that sit at the top of the threats list for the average Australian.
1: That is so interesting, isn't it, given the geographic divide between Russia and Australia, that everyday Australians feel a a sense of threat uh, from Russia's foreign policy?
2: I think it's partially
1: driven by Russia's
2: invasion of Ukraine reminding Australians that we cannot take peace and security for granted in our region, it's also that the majority of Australians, more than eight in 10 Australians, worry between Russia and China. And so when you look at what Australians feel threatened by, again, the thing that's really risen up the list in the last two years is the possibility of a military conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan. So I think a lot of Australians, they're worried about Russia, but I think they look at Ukraine and they maybe think about Taiwan and they worry about the implications of that.
1: Interesting. Now, the, the survey, Natasha, has been going for 18 years. So I'm guessing by this point, when you get your annual results, you can measure where there might be shifts or general trends now as compared to 18 years' worth of data. So was there anything this year that was a real revolution or a surprise or something that worked counterintuitively given what previous results had been? So, maybe I'll give
2: you one positive and one negative. So, over the course of the last 18 years, there's been very dramatic changes in the way that Australia sees China, particularly the last four years as the bilateral relationship has soured and as Australians have increasingly seen China as more of a security threat to Australia rather than an economic partner. Now, there are many reasons for that, but something that's quite dramatic this year is that 75% of Australians say that China represents a military threat to Australia in the next two decades. Now, this is a question that we've been asking for a very long time. And generally, those results have been down in the 40s. And so for that to jump up to 75%, I think is a really striking difference when you look back over the past decade or so of results. But I promised you a positive, and here it is. Historically, Australians have been quite negative or shall we say unconvinced by the benefits of foreign aid and providing aid to countries in our region for various reasons. As a general rule, Australians have overestimated how much Australia spends on aid and they've still said that we should be spending less. This seems to be changing at the moment and I think that partially it's the COVID crisis that has made Australians a little more empathetic to countries in the region in terms of what we should be providing. And so what we see is that Nine in 10 Australians are in favour of providing aid to the Pacific for disaster relief, for vaccines against COVID, for economic development and for preventing China from increasing its influence. I think that's a really fascinating shift and one that should give us a little bit of confidence.
1: It is interesting, when you when you dig down into those foreign aid results, as described in your report, it, it's a very pragmatic kind of uh, empathy that, that you discover, in the sense that people seem to be uh, in favour, potentially, of foreign aid to the Pacific and to the immediate region. And certainly, for example, helping out an island neighbour who might have been affected by some kind of natural disaster. But, but, there is a there's a practicality to that, isn't there? Where you don't see that is where uh, Australians are considering, for example, aid to other other parts of the world uh, for non-specific uh, disasters, nor non-specific reasons?
2: I think that's correct. And we suddenly saw in last year's polling, for example, that Australians were very, uh, open to providing COVID vaccines to the Pacific, but there was less support for sending COVID vaccines to Southeast Asia. So I think proximity is definitely a factor here. And as you say, those kind of pragmatic crises, Australians want to be involved in that. You know, another example of that is that Australians have traditionally been, let's say, mixed in their views about accepting refugees. In the kind of general sense, but we look at the results this year in 2022, 90% of Australians are willing to admit Ukrainian refugees into Australia. So, again, I think when presented with a specific scenario of need, Australians respond in a different way to the hypothetical.
1: What about attitudes toward the US? I note that one of the outcomes seems to suggest that most Australians believe that the US would come to Australia's aid if Australia was under threat. But at the same time, there are reservations about our relationship with the US as well. So what what does the poll tell us? This is a really fascinating dynamic where... Historically,
2: Australians have been quite supportive of our alliance with the United States, regardless of who is sitting in the White House. It's been very strong. And what we can see today is that because Australians are feeling quite afraid, they're very worried about security in the region, the number of Australians who see the alliance as important to Australia's security to return to record highs, 87% of Australians say that the alliance is important to Australia's security. This is a nine-point jump from last year, and it's, it's equal to the highest level of support we've seen, which was under former President Obama's administration. But at the same time, we don't have the high levels of warmth and trust in the United States that we had during the Obama years. And in fact, because Australians are reluctant to be entangled in another forever war like in the Middle East and perhaps a little burned from the withdrawal of Afghanistan. We also have a record high of Australians saying that the alliance makes it more likely Australia will be dragged into a war in Asia that would not be in our interests. That's a view held by 77% of Australians. So you see there's this kind of mix of feeling as though we need the United States in this time, where by feeling unsafe, we feel that the alliance is very important. But we also worry about the implications and whether it makes it more likely that Australia ends up in a conflict.
1: But is there a chance that there's a bit of a lag there too, Natasha, in the sense that we could, oh, you, you may well have been measuring attitudes to a Trump White House with some of these outcomes this year, even though, of course... President Biden is now in power, but it, I'm I'm guessing that that Australians who are being polled might have about the United States could be derived from the period when President Trump was in the White House. I, we've certainly seen some results kind of have a
2: Biden bounce, for lack of a better word, where trust, for example, has gone up since. President Trump left the White House, but it hasn't been very high. And I think that Australians have looked at what has happened in the United States in the past year, and they still have a lot of reservations about the future. You know, there's a significant proportion of Australians who say that the domestic instability and political instability in the United States poses a threat to our interests. And there's also falling confidence in President Biden. So last year, seven in 10 Australians had confidence in President Biden. That's now down to six in 10 Australians. So he's lost 10 points of support in just a year. So I think that Australians are worried about the United States' future trajectory, but they're much more worried by Russia and by China. And so that still means they kind of are doubling down on the alliance when there's not an
1: alternative. You have a very cool way of measuring feelings towards other nations in your polling, whereby you actually have a feelings thermometer, as you describe it, uh, where people are on a scale or nations are on a scale of zero degrees to 100 degrees, which is where Australians have the warmest feelings. And, you know, it's surprising that it? we have warmer feelings towards Tonga, for example, than we do toward the U.S., so I'm wondering, you know, there seems to be all kinds of factors at play here, but which of our friends and allies do we in fact hold in highest regard then? Well, consistently for the
2: last couple of years, New Zealand has sat at the top of that thermometer. And essentially, for the history of the Lowy Institute poll, New Zealand has been the top. And I know that Australia and New Zealand, you know, have occasional tiffs and conflicts, but I think it's a lot like when siblings fight, (laughs) they still remain family. Um, But the other countries that rank very highly are our Five Eyes partners, Canada, and the United Kingdom. And Japan actually really stands out as a country that. Australians consistently feel very warmly towards and very high levels of trust towards. You know, we mentioned previously that the United States is not necessarily ranking that highly on some of these questions. Well, Japan is consistently seen as a more trusted partner than the United States for the majority of Australians.
1: There's also, uh, I guess, the point of foreign policy, the role of foreign policy is something that you ask questions about. And most people polled seem to believe that the role of foreign policy is to protect jobs what else is of concern in in, in that isu- on that issue Well, Australians have quite, I would say, a diverse range of views on this issue. You know,
2: Australians, I think, want us to be active internationally. You know, the majority say that we should be participating fully in multilateral events, playing a leading role at the United Nations. If you look, for example, at attitudes towards climate change, you know, throughout Australia's messy climate wars, the public have said that Australia should be doing better on the world stage on that particular front. But there's a very strong defence and security tilt at the moment that I think is worth pointing out. And again, points to that insecurity and anxiety that Australians are feeling about world events. You know, when you look at where Australians, for example, want budget to be allocated in 2022, the majority want to increase defence spending. That's gone up 20 points in just three years. You know, that's, very remarkable because there's always been, I think, much more ambivalence or mixed attitudes towards big defence expenditure. And similarly, you know, seven in 10 Australians say that we should acquire the nuclear-powered submarines that have been announced under the Orca deal. Again, that's, you know, a very high level of confidence in a quite dramatic change to Australia's force posture, but the majority
1: seem to be behind it. So if you were a defence or a foreign policy planner and this poll landed on your desk, what kind of conclusions do you think might you be able to draw from the survey? Uh, Are there future directions, if you like, hinted at in these results that might be uh, promising uh, directions for Australian policymakers to, to take? I think that on some of these questions, the settings are
2: already in place, right? So, for example, the doubling down on the alliance with the United States, the um, seeing of China as more of a threat, these are positions that have been in place for our government for some time. So, what I would point to in response to your question are the things that perhaps perhaps our foreign policy have not aligned with public opinion on. And I think there are three key ones that I would point to. The first is what we've already discussed on foreign aid. We've seen foreign aid cut year on year on year under the last government. And partially that was seen as something supported by the public. Now, looking at our results this year, I can see a bit of a shift, at least in terms of the Pacific. And so I would be saying that you know, boosting our foreign aid budget is something that the Australian public is now getting more behind. The second thing I have to point to is climate change. Of course, we now have a government that is promising to do much more on climate change. But I think we can see Um, appetite for even more ambition. Just as one example, 64% of Australians would support introducing an emissions trading scheme or a carbon tax. You know, that's not on the table at the moment. A similar number, 63% say we should be banning new coal mines from opening in Australia. So the Australian public on quite a few questions are more progressive and more forward-leaning on climate change than either side of politics at the moment. And the third point that I think I would take away as a planner um, you know, sitting in Canberra, as I once did, I should say, is that Australians are increasingly open to immigration and after the last two years of closed borders, they're even more open and so seven in 10 Australians say that Australians' openness to people from all over the world is essential to who we are as a nation. That's up 15 points in four years. And similarly, you know, more than 70% of Australians want immigration either to return to pre-COVID levels or to be even higher than pre-COVID levels. So I think that those are the issues where I would say our current settings don't necessarily match up to what the public is saying.
1: Natasha, just finally, you've also tracked values versus economic interest over time, so where people put their preferences. What does the poll tell us about how we've felt in the past and how we feel now? This is something that has changed a
2: little bit, where if you asked about 10 years ago, you would get around 70% of Australians saying that we should prioritise values, and about 30% saying we should prioritise economic interests. Now, the last time we asked that question uh, was last year, and we saw that shifted a little to 60-40, where there was still about 60% of Australians saying democratic values are more important where there's a clash, and 40% were saying economic interests are more important where there's a clash. Now, the one thing I would just point out is that in 2022... Australian support for democracy has reached a record high. 74% say that democracy is preferable to any kind of government. And I think that the messaging out of this government and the last government, particularly following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, about the need for democracy to stand up to autocracy is resonating on some level. And we can see the majority of Australians are concerned by the rise of authoritarianism around the world. And they're also much more likely to recognise democracies in our region and see some of these countries as partners for Australia. So I think that values are going to be playing more of a role as we go forward. And perhaps that becomes even clearer when you think about the way Australia's relationship with China has changed, which is one of those examples where until a couple of years ago, uh, economics were prioritised over values, but that does not seem to be the case anymore.
1: Thanks, Natasha. Fascinating kind of hints, tantalising hints of of what the future may hold for Australia if it's driven by people's interests. So thank you so much for sharing those ideas. Thanks for having me, Kylie. So that's Natasha Kasim, who's the Director of Public Opinion and Foreign Policy uh, at the Lowy Institute. Coming up, UN peacekeepers in times of trouble, do they make a difference? In the their reputation was terrible. UN peacekeepers were better known for their failures to protect civilians from atrocities than their success in defending them. But in the decades since, Experts say that blue-helmeted soldiers are making a difference in all kinds of ways, but perhaps without the recognition they deserve. Lisa Howard is a Professor of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University in the US. In her spare time, she's President of the Academic Council in the UN System, and she's written a book called Power in Peacekeeping. She joins us now. Dr. Howard, hello and welcome to Between the Lines. Hello, it's great to hear from you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Now listen, how have things improved? What's changed since the bad old days of UN peacekeeping failures in places like Rwanda and Srebrenica in the early 90s?
0: A lot has changed, but the main thing to note is that since the what I would call a genocide, some people dispute it, in Srebrenica in Bosnia in, in 1995, we have not had another genocide while peacekeepers were watching. So in other words, during the, the terrible, tra- I mean the genocide in Rwanda, uh, I would also add significant, terrible, tragic killing in Angola, and then also of course in Bosnia in, in the early to mid 1990s. That all happened while UN peacekeepers were deployed. And since that time, we have not had another mass casualty or genocide While peacekeepers were watching, were standing by watching. So that that is probably the most significant change since that time. So in other words, bilateral actors working in concert with peacekeepers have managed to prevent another another genocide since that time.
1: How has that been achieved though, Dr. Howard? Has it been achieved through ensuring that the deployment of peacekeepers is suited to their abilities to maintain a piece, for example, or has it changed by virtue of the training uh, of peacekeepers and the role that they are given uh, in a conflict to act?
0: Well, it's a little of both. And I would also add (laughs) that even during the 1990s, there were many more successful missions than failures, but it's always the failures that grab the headlines. So, Since the early 1990s, if you look at missions that have similar mandates, so if we think of two kinds, basic types of wars, wars between states and civil wars, originally peacekeeping was designed to monitor ceasefire lines after wars concluded between two states, and then peacekeeping shifted during the 1990s to to address civil wars. So this, these are internal conflicts. And if you look across the 10 most similar at the time in the early 1990s, well, actually we're, we're up to about 16 of those missions now, the 16 most similar missions with the most similar mandates. UN peacekeepers have successfully implemented their mandates and departed. So difficult, complex state-building missions. Um, they're, they're successful about two-thirds of the time. So it's a remarkable success rate if you step back and take a look at at similar missions. If you just focus on the failures, all you see is failure. But if you step back and look more broadly, the picture is quite different. Um, Now, what has changed? I think the main shift is that in the complex civil wars, we have peacekeepers intervening alongside Uh, more traditional military actors. So for example, in East Timor, we had the the Australian-led Interfet mission in 1999, uh, helping to stabilize East Timor before uh, more traditional UN peacekeepers deployed to help rebuild.
1: So as you describe it, that sounds like a recognition of the Realistic role of peacekeeping. These soldiers can't be seen as a force that can achieve the bringing of peace to uh, conflict when it's in mid-flow. Uh, you can't just drop them in and say, "Well, look here, here are the, here's the deal, here's the peace deal, and it's now your job to go out and and protect that." Presumably now yes. there's a more nuanced understanding of of how effectively a, a role can be played by peacekeepers.
0: That's exactly it. So what distinguishes peacekeeping from other forms of intervention, war fighting, is that peacekeeping doctrine has three main uh, components. So it's the consent of the parties. In theory, a peacekeeping mission, a UN peacekeeping mission, should not deploy until there's some kind of peace agreement to keep. Right. So it, they deploy with the consent of the parties. The parties acknowledge that they, have, they are at greater risk of continuing fighting without third-party monitors keeping them, uh, keeping them honest to what they've agreed to in the peace deal. So consent, they're supposed to deploy impartially, so with impartiality, with not taking sides. So helping to implement peace agreements without being partial Calling out when people, when sides violate ceasefire agreements or other aspects of peace agreements, but doing this in an impartial way, almost like a judge, and then exercising the limited use of force. So these these are the three components of peacekeeping doctrine from, from its advent in the 1940s, in 1948. So consent, impartiality, and limited use of force, that's what distinguishes UN peacekeeping from other
1: forms of military intervention. To bring it to an example from today, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Howard, with the second invasion of Ukraine by Russia, there is a new emphasis, of course, on war fighting in the international system. You know, Neighbours, allies are being asked, and in many cases agreeing to arm Ukraine in its battle with Moscow. There are very few talking of building peace, of sending in international observers or peacekeepers. You know, can you imagine a role in peacekeeping to resolve? That current conflict, or does that not meet the tenets that you describe, yeah. the conditions that need to exist for peacekeeping to be effective?
0: Peacekeeping is a, cool, is a tool uh, often of conflict management. It can be a tool of conflict resolution, but that's if the parties are willing to stop fighting. And that is obviously not where we are right now. <laughs> so I will just note that for the last eight years, we've had OSCE monitors from 57 different countries, monitoring the conflict in in Luhansk and Donetsk in, in, in Eastern Ukraine. And the death rate in Eastern Ukraine compared to previous rounds of fighting in Ukraine where millions of people died, and compared to other civil wars where millions of people are dying, the death rate in Ukraine was very, very low for the eight years when we had OSCE monitors monitoring every single shell, every single move in that conflict. So it's just to say that both sides are familiar with the idea of having monitors. Both sides want to fight now. And so monitors cannot stop fighting. But if if parties are willing to agree by certain rules, then
1: monitors can help them implement and
0: enforce those rules.
1: So you're talking about the ideal political conditions needing to exist before any peacekeeping can happen. The politics have to make it possible. I don't know if it's
0: ideal, but there does have to be some sort of agreement, some sort of compromise. Often it involves compromise by both sides, unless there's an outright victory by one side. So peacekeepers often deploy when there's no clear victory, right? So both sides acknowledge neither is going to win. This is probably the, not, not the ideal way forward for either side, but uh, a, a least worse solution. Uh, in the war in Ukraine right now, both sides have maximalist aims. And because of that, I, I don't see a role for, peacekeeping, for peacekeepers until something more conclusive occurs in that war.
1: Do we now more broadly have a better understanding of the qualities of peacekeeping versus the qualities of war fighting? I mean, as you describe it, it's a very different purpose and a very different setting. Mm-hmm. Are soldiers themselves now better equipped with an understanding of the different roles? So, if they're deployed as peacekeepers, for example, to a nation in Africa, they understand from the moment they get off their planes the job that they're there to do and how they're meant to behave.
0: Where peacekeepers are deployed in, in conflicts of similar types across all conflicts, and, and it's most notably in Africa, uh, given the way peacekeepers are trained and what they do, we have far, far fewer civilian deaths. Now, what is it about peacekeepers that mean, UN peacekeepers, that means that there are fewer civilian deaths? It's something in the diversity of the deployment, right? So we have different peacekeepers bringing different things to the table. If you think about a standard military operation, unity of training, of command, clear command and control lines, those are all very important for fighting and winning wars, for peacekeeping, for, for protecting civilians, making sure that people aren't dying, making sure that women and, and, and men are not being sexually abused during conflict. That requires a different set of skills. Most of the time, what UN peacekeepers are doing is helping to build local institutions, right? So helping to rebuild roads and schools and magistrates and town halls and um, to restart the functioning of the state so that people don't die. So we have some battalions coming with expertise in dentistry and actually veterinary care is, is essential to make sure that people have livelihoods and 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 food to eat with expertise in just in, in different aspects of
1: recovering from civil war and that is what peacekeepers bring to the table do soldiers from some nations make better peacekeepers than others dr howard is it is it a matter of experience? Once it's your third deployment, you really get the gig and, and you can be confident in knowing what your objectives are, what the rules of engagement are? Or is it about trying to find, I suppose, neighbourly forces or forces from the region uh, that might be participating in a neighbour's conflict or brought in to play a role in that conflict? Does that, does that kind of local knowledge help?
0: Uh, The local knowledge can help and the local knowledge can, and the the regional interests can also hurt. So I don't want to single anyone out here. There have been disputed uh, territories. Some companies of one state might want to take over the diamond mines or the Colton mines of another state. And so we certainly can have unintended consequences of some some countries participating in peacekeeping missions, especially where there is a an, an interest that does not necessarily involve concluding the civil war and bringing peace. So just to just to put that out there, um, not all peacekeeping battalions are equal. That said, in general, most states send very high quality peacekeeping troops. Right, they're generally very well trained, even if they lack some training there. They're often uh, a little bit older than you often see in in military in standard military settings, right? So peacekeepers, especially from the the South Asian states from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, tend to be closer to their 30s and well into their 30s, sometimes into their 40s. So experienced, mature people
1: who are
0: you know professionals there to help.
1: There is a complexity, isn't there, to peacekeeping mm-hmm. that you might argue. Isn't present in war fighting in the sense that it's there's perhaps a more linear outcome that you're searching for or that you're fighting for if you're in the business of war fighting. But if it's peacekeeping, you know you, there are all kinds of questions of how do you persuade and induce local populations to behave in a particular way when offensive action is only ever a last resort if uh, it's allowed at all. So there's a requirement. You've you've got to find different tools, haven't you, to, to achieve your aims. Exactly. So because
0: peacekeepers come from dozens of different countries, they don't speak each other's languages. They don't necessarily train together before they deploy. They don't follow a standard chain of command. Because of these qualities of peacekeeping, peacekeepers in some ways are obligated to find other ways to change behavior. And so rather than using offensive force to change behavior, it's much more creative, right? Yes, it's it's exactly that. It's about inducing, figuring out different kinds of material inducements. It might be um, uh, providing aid, providing things that people need. Uh, it might be restricting markets, so restricting markets and weapons, most notably, uh, or in mineral trade. That's contributing to the war, and then using persuasion, so soft power, waging campaigns to um, to demonstrate a lot of different things: how to build a political party, how to vote in elections, how to how to shift from the politics of using force to get your way to the politics of using your words and persuasion to to achieve your
1: aims. So peacekeeping is now by far, I think, the most expensive of UN departments. And I know in mm-hmm. the late, you know, uh, 20-teens, in 2015, it was costing nearly $9 billion uh, mm-hmm. to keep 120,000 Blue Helmet soldiers and policemen deployed. Uh, so given that that kind of bill is coming due... Uh, and with those numbers of soldiers deployed, presumably that reflects a level of confidence within the UN, within the organization, that this is money well spent, that this is something that you can bank on, that this is a, a role for the UN to play that is only ultimately to the benefit of members.
0: Yes, peacekeeping is, is by far the most expensive endeavor in the United Nations system. Uh, in And it the the number of troops and the budgets peaked in 2015. Now, the United States contributes 28% of the peacekeeping budget. And under the Trump administration, there was far less interest in the UN in general and in peacekeeping in particular. So since that time, the peacekeeping budget now stands as about a little over 6 billion. So it's been reduced by a third. We have about 90,000 troops, uh, so police, military troops and civilians deployed across 12 missions now. So um, peacekeeping has, has, has reduced in size significantly since 2015, in large part due to the Trump administration's disinterest in peacekeeping. Peacekeeping budgets are generally driven by the United States because of how much the US contributes. And I'll just note that the Biden administration has been supportive of peacekeeping, but we don't see the kind of budgetary contributions that we saw under previous administrations. And I will also note that it was George W. Bush's, his two administrations that dramatically increased the size and scope of peacekeeping. So we think of a Republican presidents as being less favorable toward the UN. But if you look at the budgets, that ha- that actually hasn't necessarily been the pattern. Um, certainly, President Trump was less supportive. But the previous president's Bush's father and son were, were both very supportive of UN peacekeeping, even though they didn't, they didn't talk about it an awful lot. So yes, we have significantly fewer peacekeepers deployed. We have fewer missions than we've had in the past. So there are 12 peacekeeping missions right now. Peacekeeping. Is a successful form of intervention, unlike most others. Right, so we have fewer civilian deaths when peacekeepers deploy. For 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 the quantitative studies, the the results of peacekeeping are very clear. Uh, if you step back and just think about it quantitatively, so where there are peacekeepers deployed, civil wars don't last as long. They recur less frequently. You have more robust post-conflict institutions emerging. You have more robust civil society, greater respect for human rights, shift towards democracy and less use of force, less violence within societies, right? So there are there are a lot of positive things that come with peacekeeping as opposed to counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency is a different form of intervention and Success rates in counterinsurgency have been declining for 100 years. It's not just Iraq and and, and Afghanistan. That that form of intervention has not been particularly successful for a long time.
1: Much to think about there, Dr. Howard. Thank you. Maybe time to update the uh, peacekeepers' reputation, uh, judging by your uh, research and conclusions. They're doing a better job than most people think. So we really appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I I really appreciate it. That's Dr. Lisa Howard, who's the Professor of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University and also President of the Academic Council on the United Nations System. Up as Papua New Guinea heads to the polls, what are the challenges of putting democracy into practice? neighbour Papua New Guinea is about to go to the polls to tell us what's involved and it is quite a process and what's been happening I turn to Teddy Nguyen who's a former lecturer at the University of Papua New Guinea and now a PhD candidate in political science at James Cook University's Townsville campus. Teddy thanks for joining us.
3: It's a pleasure having me thank you.
1: Teddy, what would you describe as the defining features of the PNG elections? How are elections in PNG different to other places?
3: I guess uh, the, the defining moment, the defining feature of the of elections in Papua New Guinea, uh, when it comes to election, uh, it basically rules around the the issue of big men, politicians, and money politics. Uh, That has always been the mainstay of PNG politics since 1977. So when it comes to PNG politics, uh, it's always personality and patronage, pretty much driven by candidates of big men politicians with money, who pretty much basically run the show in every election cycles since 1977, which is the first post-independence election uh, of the country.
1: And how much do you think the way that the PNG elections operate provide opportunities for that money, that mixture of big man politics and money as you describe it. It's a very, it's a kind of a daunting process, isn't it? You've got to get out into remote areas. You're relying on local officials to organise, you know, the mechanics of how people vote. A lot of work can be done. A lot of campaigning can be done without oversight of anyone really. Is that part of what creates the opportunity for that kind of graft and corruption to exist?
3: Indeed, absolutely. The way uh, money has been involved in politics, basically, if you like, pushes aside some segment of society and especially vulnerable members of society and particularly to do with you know fair representation, especially women candidates are some of those uh, worst affected people when it comes to election. And this also extends into... Uh, voter rights. So you tend to realize that PNG being a, uh, patrilineal petri- society, it is dominated by male interests. And so this pushes aside female interests, especially those female candidates who are trying to vie for public office, as much as, uh, the female folks in general who are trying to basically exercise the universal franchise or suffrage, if you like. And when it comes to promoting, uh, irregularities and electoral fraud and violence, I think money has got to do, got to play a lot of uh, uh, part in that. And that also extends into the gun culture, the entrance gun culture in seven parts of the country, especially in the islands, uh, region of Papua New Guinea.
1: Teddy, you, you talk about women candidates being the worst affected by some of these uh, inappropriate campaigning or corrupt campaigning. How are they affected? What, what's happening for them?
3: The political dynamics basically is, is, is so very complex that women basically who don't have resources who are less resourceful in staging a, a successful campaign. Usually basically the interests are overshadowed or downplayed by you know men with money or political candidates with money most of the times. So you tend to realize that uh women candidates basically uh during the first week or two of, of the elections, uh the the effort in Staging a what was supposed to be a successful campaign basically uh, ran out during the first two weeks. And thereafter, they basically began to uh, sow less interest. And that is partly one of the reasons why uh, women candidates, basically uh, since 1977, did not have a very successful campaign uh, missionary or platform to drive their uh, political interests.
1: They're not as connected to, to the money and the power. That candidates require to be successful.
3: Yes, because they are less resourceful. They are not as connected to uh, the influence of money politics uh, in in PNG. And yeah, that's right.
1: If you live in a remote village in the Highlands, for example, how does the election roll into your town? What what goes on there? What kind of events might be staged, and uh, visitors might come in to try and persuade you to gather gather your votes.
3: Pre polling before any 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 other uh, activity basically takes place, usually at the campaign house. And the campaign house is usually a place uh, that's where plans are being made, uh, how to approach the elections, that's where uh, parties are being held, feasts are being held. So elections in PNG is always uh, very moody, it's always very uh, colorful, if you like, and it's always full of you know surprises as well. Uh, and it's also a place where Candidates basically strategize, and the supporters, of course, as to how to approach the elections, even to, to make plans about, how to bribe, how to bribe, or plans about intimidating the rival supporters or groups. So, so many things basically happen within this uh, space of campaign houses, uh, and we tend to find it uh, to be the most, uh, if you like, productive uh, enterprise, especially. Uh, in the islands of Papua New Guinea, where campaign house is basically, uh, has always been basically built to accommodate the interests of candidates and the supporters.
1: And let's mix into this now in our in our um, fictional village and, and, and its campaign house, where this election is being organised. Let's imagine that it's in one of those areas where you talk about gun culture becoming a real uh, aspect or a real problem within the campaign. How does that work? Is that simply a a demonstration of power by one group over another? Are there threats and intimidation from armed groups?
3: Yeah, precisely. Uh, In the island's region of the country, I think uh, gun basically uh, symbolises, you know, absolute power. And gun is the weapon of choice that basically intimidates uh, rival supporters and candidates. You know, so gun basically basically is, uh, is a form of power and a weapon of choice that basically uh, candidates and the supporters utilizes uh, in the election campaign.
1: I'm Kylie Morris. You're listening to Between the Lines on RN, and we're talking to Teddy Wynn, who's now a PhD candidate in political science at James Cook University's Townsville campus. He was a former lecturer at the uh, University of Papua New Guinea. So, Teddy, am I right in thinking that there's over 3,000 candidates running for office?
3: Yes, right. Uh, For 2017, we have around 3,300 candidates. Uh, For this election, we have 100 more. So we have 3,000, about 3,400 candidates.
1: Why is it so competitive? Why is being a politician seen as such a good thing to do? What's the attraction?
3: I think... In PNG politics, everyone wants to become uh, the next prime minister. Everyone want, wants to become the next, you know, person or the next person that delivers cargos, and not one single person wants to become the seventh. Uh, so everyone wants to become a politician, and so that that makes uh, PNG politics uh, again very interesting in the regards. The main reason why we have huge number of people going in to contest elections because uh, the main reason given is that they want to exercise their Section 50 right, uh, which in the PNG Constitution is the right to stand for public office or the right to vote. And so every year we tend to see uh, an increasing number of people trying to basically exercise their right. Some are genuine, uh, some are not genuine, some many go in with no money, less, less resources, and so on and so forth. So, uh, one of the reasons, basically, has to do with the frustrations that people have, and in trying to exercise the Section 50 right as as required in the Constitution, and so you tend to tend to realize that uh, people basically go into elections with all sorts of motives.
1: So, if you want to win a seat in the next elections, what should you be promising, Teddy? What what are the big issues uh, that people are campaigning on that are most likely to stir up voters and get get support? Do you think?
3: There is only one simple uh, rule to that: uh, If you want to win an election, and especially if you want to convince people to vote you in, majority of Papua New Guinean voters are situated throughout the length and breadth of the country outside of the main urban uh, centers. And so if you want to convince Papua New Guineans that you will be the best person to serve them, promise them only one thing, and that is you can deliver on the, on the promises that you've made. And so, one of the thing that is uh, the defining PNG politics is the high turnover rate of incumbents. So since 1977, we tend to realize that uh, turnover rate is basically between 50, 50 to 55 percent. So most of it, most most times, after the incumbents are voted out, that's because uh, voters are frustrated. With the politicians or with the members of parliament, the members of parliament for not delivering on the promises in the previous elections. So, if you want to win a political seat in PNG, promise the people that you can deliver. You got to be pragmatic. Uh, you can deliver the basic necessities that matter most to them: education, health, and other uh, essential infrastructure. Then, of course, you can be guaranteed a direct entry uh, into parliament in Port Moresby.
1: It's an interesting time, I'm guessing, for PNG, given that you have traditionally in the country a system of reciprocity where, you know, one group of people helps out another group of people and within those social networks, families and clans do the same. But that's crashing into uh, a new reliance on individualism and aspiration and people believing that, you know, now is their chance to lift themselves out of um, whatever their family's living situation might have been over the mm-hmm. last decades. Can you see evidence of that in the way that politics is being practised at the moment?
3: Yeah, precisely. There is this increasing reliance on neoliberal uh, approaches uh, in, in in trying to, you know, cater for one's and one's family's needs. And so reciprocity has always been the mainstay uh, of PNG uh, social coercion and society. For instance, the of system has always been the, you know, we feel like the social security system, a tight needed system that keeps society, family, friends, uh, members of clans, tribes together. Uh, but over time, because we have this, uh new version of uh, societal order arrangement, especially to do with neoliberal approach, we tend to see, uh, Fragmentation within and among groups, but this is not to say that you know society basically society is basically uh, pretty much uh, fractured or fragmented. Uh, when it comes to you know elections and especially sharing of resources, I think money is the is the common denominator here that, that divides a society, and so this idea about being uh, you know pursuing of individual pursuits and the, based on neoliberal uh, paradigm or approach basically is the is the thing that uh, tend to uh, fragment uh, uh, society. But otherwise, uh, the social reciprocity uh, systems in Papua New Guinea is, is still very strong. Uh, and this is the system, the social security system, that keeps uh, society and groups of people together.
1: Teddy, just finally, when might voters expect a result in PNG? And I mean, we've got to ask this because now it's a two-stage question. Will people trust and accept the outcome when it comes do you think
3: that has always been very predictable since 1977 uh, regardless of whether uh, the process has been uh, questionable the outcome will be will still be accepted uh, but that uh, it will come with uh, you know certain uh, frustration especially for uh, some candidates who might like to stage a uh, vote of disputed returns uh, in, a, in, in a in a disputed returns court. Uh, But since 1977, people or this government has always accepted election results, regardless of uh, the irregularities and uh, every other thing that basically goes uh, through the processes. The outcome has always uh, been continuously accepted uh, uh, by people and, of course, uh, government in in TNG.
1: Thanks, Teddy. Much to learn and much to look out for. But uh, we really appreciate your thoughts today.
3: It's a pleasure having me and I appreciate your time.
1: That's Teddy Wynn, a PhD candidate in political science at James Cook University's Townsville campus, talking there about the PNG elections. And that's the show. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Spitzer. Thanks for your company. Join me again next week for more from Between the Lines here on ABCRN.